the utility players i'm ali and i'm rory and welcome to our world of sport welcome to episode five of the utility players rory very interesting weekend for our classified results i see that your Werner brennan team snuck through just an away goals oh, oh my gosh it was it was tense this weekend for Werner brennan but absolutely delighted when it was two all you just in those sorts of games, you just think, oh, thank God for the away goal rule in domestic football, because <laughs> it's not something we enjoy here in England. Yeah, and especially two goals after 90 minutes, <laughs> taking you know, taking the lead in the 94th minute and then and then giving away a penalty to, to go back to two in the 98th minute. It's an incredible way for the game to finish. I feel like with these like playoff games, and you see it with the English playoffs and the championship all the time, late goals just seem to be so inevitable. It's almost like you can never get to 90 minutes and just think the game is won. Because I think when there's just so much riding on these games and they mean so much to the clubs that it is just teams fight to the end so much more than they would do in normal league games. It seemed we see late goals in playoffs so often that it just, it almost wasn't a surprise, but it was an amazing finish. I mean, it's a good point because why are we not seeing that in more and more games? I was watching the, the Tottenham Everton game last night in the Premier League and um, Everton looked like they were doing absolutely nothing until there was about three minutes to go, even later than that, in extra time. And then all of a sudden, they seemed to commit men forward and everything. They were only losing 1-0 at the time. Why is that not something they're doing? It was ridiculous to see. I think Gary Neville went to town on them afterwards as well. Yeah, I mean, that was a rubbish game of football. That was the game of football was defined by the fight that almost broke out between Hugo Lloris and Son, both Tottenham players, just before half-time. I think that was about the only exciting thing that happened in the game. It was uh, it was awful to say. But uh, other football, uh, my, well, I say my Derby County, uh, me and Roy have both spent some time in the East Midlands of England and and through that uh, time have, have sort of got lukewarm supporting to, to our local team. So my Derby County getting a late goal to get a draw against your Nottingham Forest. Oh, this was hard to take. This was really hard to take because... Forest battered County and it was one of those ones which when you get on top not getting kind of two three goal leads and then letting teams back in at the end and Forest controlled the game they dictated the game but I mean I blame the commentators because they spent the whole game talking about how good Forest was and how good Sabri Larushi was tactically in that game and then they just give the curse of the commentator that meant Derby got back into it so yeah I wasn't happy at all ah, it's just just what happens when you come up against the big power of the East Midlands you, <laughs> you you're gonna have to really go 90 minutes to to topple the kings the kings of the uh, the region well we'll we'll have conversations about kings come the end of the season and the and the promotion battle shall we yeah I think so and it looks like certainly Forest are going to be in the playoffs 
uh, Derby are pushing against the playoffs to get Premier League, and we might see some more l- late goals like we saw for your Vernon Brain team. Your 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 teams are are really putting you through the mill at the moment. <laughs> I mean, I I don't expect anything else these days when it comes to sport. Years of mixed emotions and ups and downs means it's 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 all part of the fun. But it's been good at the moment. It has been good, so we'll, we'll take it. On to some slightly different news. Uh, we've, we talked, obviously, a lot about the global pandemic of coronavirus and the effect it's having on sport. And each podcast, I, I feel we talk about what's going on, but it's always a little asterisk beside it because any given week, you don't know what's going to change as this this pandemic changes. Something we're seeing with, with sports that haven't returned yet in Major League Baseball over in the United States and with, with Rugby Union, uh, an English Rugby Union tournament here in the UK, is almost a battle between the governing bodies and uh, or the owners and the players around what fair resumption looks like from a kind of financial standpoint. So Major League Baseball this week, they've finally, after about a month of what they call in labour negotiations, has, has led to a 60-game schedule before postseason, not including postseason over there. And the sort of months of negotiation sort of came about because there was an, an agreement between, I think it was back in March, between the Players Association and the owners, where the players would be get a, a basically a, a pro rata payment on the number of games that are played. So a baseball season, I don't know, probably 200-odd games. It's a ridiculous amount of games they play in a, in a regular season of baseball over in America. That has been reduced to 60. But the whole premise was that they said they get pro rata. So if your wage was whatever and you you know reduce the number of games you played by 40%, your, your wage reduced by 40%. So it'd be reflective of, of the games you played. What the owners said about a month ago, though, is they were going to go, they put on the table, they said it was going to be a 50-50 split between the owners and between the players. Whatever money came in was going to be split 50-50. The owners would take half of it and the other half would go to pay the players. So baseball, unlike other American sports, doesn't have a salary cap. It's, so it's not based on overall percentage revenue that comes into the sport and then a percentage of that gets distributed to pay the salary cap and play the players. Each individual franchise has the ability to earn its own as much money as it can in any means they can legally. A lot of that might be around fans in the stadium and fan experience. So now you're taking fans out of it. The owners are saying, we can't earn our full potential. So they wanted to split that 50-50. What the players were saying was, well, if we split it 50-50, we might be earning less than if we did it on a pro rata basis because we have committed to signing a contract worth X. We're only going to play Y number of games, but I still should be paid for Y number of games rather than doing whatever the particular income is through TV revenue and what have you. The other element to this, as the players are saying, is that Essentially, the likelihood is we're going to lose our money and we'll be the ones who are taking on all the risk of exposing ourselves to this virus and this disease. The owners and the ownership won't be. They won't be out there mingling with other teams and other players and other officials. They'll be have the ability, if they choose to, they might choose to mingle, but if they have the ability to you know, stay in their box at home, watch on the television, run their businesses without exposing themselves to other people. So very simply, the players are going, you're asking us to earn less, but take on more of the responsibility. Yeah, I mean, when it comes to issues around payment in sport, it is very rare that I agree with the players. But I think on this occasion, I absolutely do, because 
it appears to me that the owners are putting forward this this new system and this change to give themselves more money, to give themselves as owners and give themselves as a club potentially a chance to earn more money if they're going to have to pay their players less or they can split the money in different ways, which I think as a business model doesn't stand up. I mean, everyone knows that the most successful businesses are the businesses that look after their staff. And at the end of the day, the players are their staff and most likely their most valuable staff. So as a business owner, you should be looking after your staff and looking, putting forward a system that is safe and fair for them to return to work. They shouldn't be doing it in a way that's going to cut their pay and make them more vulnerable. That just seems off. That seems wrong. And I know in all sports across the world, players do get greedy. But I don't think this is a situation of players being greedy, especially because it's not one individual player. It's a collective decision from the vast majority of the baseball players community that says that this isn't fair. We're taking on extra risk here. We shouldn't be punished for doing so. And I think that the managers and the club owners should take that on board and they should look after their staff and they look after their players properly. And the other, but the other thing as well is that even despite this, there are some players coming out and saying we are still not comfortable in getting involved. And so therefore, we're not going to opt in. And I think they're absolutely in their, their right to do that. In everyone's individual circumstances is different. I could understand the argument from the owner's side about making the business sustainable going forward uh, and needing and needing that, that money, if it was split 50-50, to allow the business to stand up. But I can't imagine any Major League Baseball franchise is going gonna, is gonna to fall apart. Uh, at, at the seams and especially because uh, and I'm saying this without a huge amount of knowledge in the area but a lot of because a lot of American sports are franchised owned that they're the, the 50% the owners are talking about goes straight into their pocket it doesn't actually necessarily go back into the into the franchise and into the team that's made a decision that the individual ownership would have to make so if it was a case of we need this money to to stay afloat and it's going into let's say the New York Yankees then that's a different conversation, but it doesn't seem to be the case. Yeah, we have seen that with sport during COVID that various, certainly while lockdown was on and clubs weren't earning, various players and managers and individuals did take pay cuts. We saw Daniel Steindl at Hearts cutting his salary totally and then unfortunately was moved on when Hearts got relegated. And I think we saw similar things at Arsenal and across the across the Premier League as well. Players taking wage cuts or taking wage freezes for periods of time while clubs try to deal with the financial implications of the virus and that is amazing and commendable but that is because it is working to keep these clubs afloat it wasn't working to just earn the owners a wee bit more money and yeah the owners might be putting some of that money back into it but without that guarantee i would want that guarantee otherwise i wouldn't be agreeing to it so you know i, I defend the players quite a lot just put this question to you so some clubs you mentioned arsenal there arsenal a couple of months ago, removed a number of its scouting departments because they said they couldn't afford, they didn't know what the financial forecast would be after this, so they couldn't afford to remove them on. But yet they hadn't necessarily moved any of the the players on. What's your take on kind of stripping back staff and you talk about looking after your workforce, whatever, it's cutting X percent of scouting, cutting X percent of coaching, cutting X percent of whatever it might be, any arm of it, but not then cutting X percent of the playing staff? Well, I think that the obvious answer is that you can't play a football game without players. You can play a football game without scouts. 
most football teams on a Sunday turn up with one coach and 14 players and they play a game. They don't turn up with the kind of 50 coaches or whatever that these teams have. And obviously it's a very different situation and it's such high level and it's so professional that you understand when they have the money to do so, why they employ so many coaches. But when the money's tight, you think, well, the coaching staff are going to be more expendable because the club can function without a lot of them, where without a pool of players, and we've seen with the amount of games that teams are playing at the moment, you need a big pool of players because you need to rotate and there's just so many games that players can't play 90 minutes two, three times a week, every week, that you need your players where you don't necessarily need all your coaches. And it is a shame for the coaches and that is a difficult situation and all sports clubs are making difficult decisions right now. But unfortunately, it is a shame that the coaches and potentially or some of the backroom staff are going to be the first to go. Well, talking of difficult decisions, moving from, from baseball over to looking what's happening rugby union in, in England. So this week I read Manu Tuolangi of the Leicester Tigers, along with four other players, have decided to leave Leicester. And this is based on the restructuring that English rugby is going through to cover the costs of, of and the impact financially that COVID-19 has had. So I think it was back in the beginning of June, uh, there was a there was a decision by all rugby clubs in England to take to reduce the salary cap, I think from down from six point four million to five million. I mean, even before that, at the very start of lockdown, there was a decision that a unilateral decision that across all of rugby, all players would be taking a twenty five percent salary cut uh, for this year. So Leicester, after taking that twenty five percent, has then tried to renegotiate various deals with its players. On top of that, and some players like George Ford, England's uh, international, signed his agreements, has, has committed, stuff like that, that's fine. However, let's say Manu Alangi and four other players have decided that their circumstances dictate that, that they can't because they couldn't, for whatever reason, they didn't feel they were getting a fair wage or getting fair fair pay for that. I mean, for me, and this is where I will never see eye to eye with professional sports people, I don't think, but... For me, this feels very different because it's not a universal decision by the players. It seems to me that the universal agreement is that this is needed in rugby um, because clubs are struggling financially. And there's much less money in English rugby union than there is in Major League Baseball for a start. But it seems that it's one or two players deciding that they are not going to fill their pockets enough playing rugby in England, which, as you mentioned before, I can empathise with and I can understand and you don't know how you'd act to that situation. But this is where I'm never going to understand or agree with professional sports people because when I played sport, I didn't play sport for myself. I never played it as, on an individual basis to be as good as I could individually or to put myself out there or to gain as to go as far as I could go. I very much played sport to commit myself to a team, to a group of people who are my friends, who we were working with towards the same goal to achieve great things as a team. And therefore, if I was... In a team environment, a professional team environment, and especially for someone like Manu Tulangi, who's grown up at Leicester Tigers, his whole family have played for Leicester Tigers, he has a strong affiliation to the club. My first and foremost would always be to protect and promote the club. It wouldn't be to protect and promote myself. And if the best thing I could do for the club was cutting my wages, and as long as, long as that wage was still livable, and I believe it is because so many players are going to be now living on it going forward, I would be making that decision because I would want to be doing the right thing for the club and doing the right thing for everyone in the club because that is my team, that is the team I've been invested in and that is the team that I want to see going forward. I wouldn't want to be 
going somewhere else just to make some more money. But that's very easy for me to say as someone who's not having to make that decision and someone who is a world away from playing a professional sport. And it could well be that actually if you're stared with, I don't know, the money that's available in France or the money that's available overseas and it is that much more than you can get in England, I can see why people would get would be tempted but for me personally I, I can't see it's a decision that I would make as I kind of allude to talk, talk, I kind of I kind of disagree I mean I, I, we have seen this podcast for loyalty is dying now just take the case of Manu Tuilangi he has grown up at the club as you said his whole family's played he's a club man he has given back to the club and, and it's you know it needs to be said that in a statement Leicester put out about these five players there, there was there was no real animosity club chairman or CEO came out and said that they understand that each individual circumstance is different and they respect the decisions that players are made. Of course, they have to say that, really. But he's 29 years old. And you say he's got, I think, 60-odd caps for England around there, maybe a little bit less, I'm not sure. But he's given up to one club when probably there were opportunities for him to go to France or wherever else and earn more money, like we have seen some English players do. Dylan Armitage comes to mind, and 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 not give back to the game in England, and therefore not be able to play for England. The way he plays rugby, he may only have two or three years left. He's not going to be the sort of player who plays in the in in the midfield or or plays in the halfback. You know, who does who avoids hits and can play into the mid thirties, etc. He plays a physical brand of rugby. So just just his scenario. He may only have two or three more years to earn as much as he can to set himself up and his family up for life after rugby. I don't know. He he might have qualifications as whatever it might be. He might have put plans in place, as we talk about with our guests, to have a career after rugby. I don't know. But he might not. And he might be thinking, well, I have a family to feed. I've got one skill set I've been very talented at. I need to make the most of it. Now, if he was someone who had, you know, jumped on the gravy train and, and jumped from club to club every year or every second year, athletes like that, I that frustrates me, showing no loyalty at all. But I don't begrudge someone who's committed his whole career to one club, and if he can, in the sort of back end of his career, making sure that he can get as much as he can for his talent. No, yeah, of course, and that's why I was kind of trying to say that until you're in that situation, you never know what how you would act and obviously everyone's individual circumstance is is different and it may well be when you looked into a circumstance that for him that is the right thing to do of course it could be and you can and you can never you can always understand why people want to make the most of their financial gain while they have the opportunity to but for me personally it just feels like an alien concept that as someone who is a pundit or who is just a punter watching sport can't quite relate to at this stage no, and be fascinating to see what the other fallouts are. Players going to get paid less wages over in the back to the United States in the NFL. We've just seen a massive contract for Patrick Mahomes, but in in general, they're saying that the big paydays aren't going to come because people can't forecast financially what it's going to look like. Uh, it's going to be really interesting to see what 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 sport shapes go after this. Talk of sport shaping, a slightly strange and hopeful, well, quite disgusting story, if it is true, came across my radar this week about Wigan Athletic. There was uh, something that popped up on, on Twitter, uh, and there's uh, since been a, an article, at least one article written in the Financial Times here in the UK about it, about what potentially could be one of the biggest scandals I've come across, certainly in British sport, 
anyone who's been following Wigan saw that they have gone into administration, which has given them a 12-point deduction, which pretty much looks like it's going to potentially seal relegation for them from the championship. So this Twitter feed gave a bit of a timeline. So if you just bear with me. So in 2018, Wigan was bought over by a, a, a new owner from Hong Kong. So two years later, in 2020, the ownership changed hands again uh, to a company based in the Cayman Islands. That company, the Cayman Islands, was set up six months before this handover took place. The majority shareholder of that company in the Cayman Islands was the same person who was the Hong Kong owner of the company in Hong Kong. For that actual transaction to go through, to change hands from the company in Hong Kong to the company in the Cayman Islands, the company in the Cayman Islands had to take a massive loan. And that loan was paid to them by the original company in Hong Kong. So it was the first company essentially loaning the money to the second company to buy Wigan Athletic off the first company. If you're getting confused, it, it took me a while to, to get my head around it as well. Seven days after that transaction happened and went from the company in Hong Kong to the company in the Cayman Islands, Wigan Athletic filed for administration and took their 12-point hit. This all seems very, very strange to me and doesn't seem to make any sense. Why, why would you buy a company, So why would you buy a football club to only seven days later put it into administration? The bit I had admitted from the start is that the Hong Kong owner, the original owner, who seems to be the majority shareholder in the Cayman Islands company, is essentially a professional gambler and, and owns casinos and owns large gambling interests in Asia. And it seems to be there's reports out there that there was a massive bet put on Wigan Athletic getting relegated this year. So it appears that the owner of Wigan has deliberately sold the club from one of his companies to another company which he set up in order to facilitate putting Wigan into administration which would guarantee that they lost 12 points and therefore effectively guarantee that they would definitely get relegated which would mean that the individual that placed this extremely large bet would benefit and would guarantee that their bet went through. So if these reports are be to be correct, and there needs to be a huge investigation from my end on whether this is true or not. I say this at the moment, it's all speculation. Is that all told, it would cost about 45 million to buy Wigan Athletic, to pay the loan, to then change hands and everything else. But if you're going to put a bet on that gets you hundreds of million, then 45 million doesn't seem to be much of a take. So if this is true, what a horrendous horrendous story and a horrendously upsetting way to see the world of sports going spot fixing is becoming bigger and bigger in many sports especially cricket people who follow cricket know the scandals of cricket spot fixing and and huge betting syndicates who are making a lot of money by the delay in live sport happening in the ground and, and then being shown on their screens and being able to know if it's no balls or hit for six or whatever and there's a big push to to, to stamp that out for cricket but this is a different level. This is this is incredible to actually actively take an interest in in disrupting a whole club's financial life just for one bet. If this is happening, it's a really sad place we're in. I mean, yeah, this is like a really harrowing story. Um, I think that the first thing to stress is that this is all 
speculation at this stage and we are just sharing what has been shared online and in the financial times. But I mean, my first reaction is poor fans, poor fans. Like it's not easy at times supporting a sports club, especially football sports teams and kind of the lower divisions of your respective domestic competitions. And Wigan have not had it easy, certainly since they left their kind of Premier League status a few years ago. But these fans who spend the hard-earned money buying season tickets, turning in week in, week out, whether it's been good, whether it's been bad, whether it's been ugly, buying their pies, buying their pint, putting back into the club, and they're now all going to the gift shop and buying shirts and buying all these things to try and keep the club afloat. There's a massive campaign to try to keep Wigan afloat and encouraging fans to spend their money in the club and go buy shirts, etc. And these fans who are putting all their hard-earned money into keeping the club that they love going to have just been let down by an act of criminality, which is what it would be if that was the case. It's just, it's just so unfair and so unjust. And the, and the other thing is that we have to be so careful with the owners we're bringing in. As, as you said, the first one I was ever really exposed to was Chelsea and, and Abramovich. And they turn around, he's made at that club. You see, you've seen it now at Manchester City. We in slightly different takes. We're seeing it. So with Arsenal, with Stan Kroenke, who owns three or four different professional sporting franchises across the world, as these big money owners are coming in to buy, we have to be really careful because it, it becomes too much about money, and and it's really really upsetting to see that it's the rich are going to get richer constantly. And we, for me, there needs to be a movement to stop certain clubs catapulting themselves up based on the backing of someone who might not be there for more than five, six years. I mean, I think it's a balancing act because we need to be careful and we need to certainly eradicate the potential for corruption that it can appears that it might have caused with the Wigan case. We'll wait for more news on that. But I also think that at the same time, we've seen examples of when New owners have caused such great and such joy and kind of a new refreshment to to sport. I mean, the Leicester story is something that's going to stick with everyone who witnessed it for forever. One of those great achievements in sport, one of those great things to have happened in sport. And it's now come up since that without the new ownership, that might not have been possible. And it wasn't a Man City case where they went and bought a million players, but just the kind of financial structures that put in allowed them to get to the state they was. And that's amazing. And even for Man City fans, and it's it's been great for them, and I think it's been great for the league because it's broken that cycle of Arsenal, Liverpool, Chelsea, Man U being the top four every year, and them doing it has allowed other clubs to do it, and it has created a more competitive Premier League. So I think, in some senses, it's been good. And we talked about the the joy that has given Man City fans, the joy that has given Leicester fans, joy that gave Chelsea fans, and potentially now the joy that Newcastle fans could be enjoying in the next few years if their if their takeover takes place. It will be great for fans, but it needs to be legitimate, it needs to be proper and it needs to be heavily vetted and managed by the league to ensure that the best interests of everyone stand up because otherwise it's too easy for big rich businessmen to play games with football clubs and then ruin it for the people that invest their life and their life and their soul into that club. If you want to sort of delve into this story around Wigan, the, the handle of the, the person who posted it is at Mark Sparko. So just go and have a read of it. As I say, the legitimacy of this still needs to be proven, but it's really interesting reading if you want to go and give yourself uh, some more details. A couple more interesting stories from this week. So we'll, as ever, do our weekly roundup. 
This weekend, the Epsom Derby was run. It was won by Serpentine, making Aidan O'Brien the most decorated trainer with his eighth winner at the Derby. Serpentine, another son of Galileo. Uh, and he'd only won his first race the week before. And in American football, the Washington Redskins are reviewing changing their name in the future. This is a conversation that has happened for a few years because of the racial implications of the name. But the recent increased conversations around race has projected the potential changing of the name into the forefront of the conversation. In F1's return, Bottas uh, won in Austria for Mercedes. There was also a British three and four with Lando Norris pipping Lewis Hamilton to third on the podium. That's the first time that Norris has got himself a podium position. Staying in Britain, golf is going to be returning for the European Tour on the 22nd of July with the British Masters. Amongst the potential qualifiers was Newcastle United legend Alan Shearer. However, he unfortunately missed making himself a place. Also in American football, we saw the biggest contract ever handed out to a player as Kansas City Chiefs quarterback Patrick Mahomes got himself a 10-year extension, meaning he's going to be at the club for another 12 years. It looks like he's going to be the most lucrative paid athlete in American sports history. And over to rugby in New Zealand, Dan Carter has been back training with his boyhood club to prepare himself to return to Super Rugby. Carter looks set to play for his new team, the Blues, and take on his lifelong club, the Crusaders. Uh, this week, we're delighted uh, to have a Commonwealth bronze medalist joining us, as well as a European Championship bronze medalist and a European Games gold medalist, silver medalist and bronze medalist, James Heatley, British diver. How are you doing? I'm good. Thank you for having me. Not at all. How's, um, how's COVID lockdown uh, been for you? I can't imagine uh, doing any diving in, onto concrete instead of water is much fun. <laughs> yeah, no, it's been uh, it's been different. A bit of a, I'm feeling like a bit of a fish out of water right now, to be fair. But uh, it's taken a bit of adjustment. But I mean, I'm kind of in the swing of things now, and it's starting to see the light at the end of the tunnel. So hopefully, it's not much longer till we're back. Yeah, good. I think we're all kind of starting to feel the same. I mean, what's your daily routine been looking like over the past few months while we've been in lockdown? Because I can imagine that's very different to what you're used to. Yeah, I mean, I'm obviously normally this time of year, we'd be deep into uh, all of our heavy competition season. So uh, it took a few weeks to sort of get used to the new normal. But generally, I've still tried to keep to a pretty tight schedule. Like I still get up at like eight every morning. I set an alarm because I mean, for me, I think routine is I need a routine. Otherwise, I'll just spiral. But um, So still doing two sessions a day, but all, obviously all land based. Can you sort of tell us what those land-based sessions are? Is it all just sort of strength and conditioning work or is it sort of routine work? How, how would that look? Yeah, so we've been doing sort of like two sessions a day. So one has been, one of those sessions tends to be very diving specific. So a lot of diving, conditioning, handstands, somersaulting type stuff. Because I mean, I've got a crash mat, so um, I can do a few basic flips. And then the other session is sort of more cardio-based or weight-based and just sort of general conditioning, like just a normal gym session. And... In terms of transitioning back into the pool when swimming pools and diving arenas do open up again, what will that be like? Obviously, because I imagine when you've not been properly diving for such a long period of time, there must be a transition period when you're going back into it. You can't maybe do your kind of biggest or most ambitious dive straight up. Will that be hard to kind of transition back or is it so natural to you now you'd get back into the pool really easily? Yeah, I think it, I mean, I definitely think it'll be different this time around because we normally have two to three weeks off in summer. But I mean, even those two to three weeks tend to feel like you forget everything. So I don't know what these last three, four months are going to be like. But um, 
I mean, I'll take a while to get the rust off, but I mean, luckily we don't have to compete again until our next big event is scheduled to be in January at the end of the month. So uh, we've got plenty of time to take it easy from now on. I mean, and can't go on holiday anywhere, so I've got nowhere to be besides <laughs> the pool once they're opened. A staycation in, in sunny Scotland. I think uh, with complexions like you're in mine, that's probably a good thing rather than going home to face the sun. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> Yes, us gingers don't do too well in the sun, do they? No, absolutely not. Um, just before we sort of look ahead to, to returning to some competitions, as you mentioned in January, just looking back, uh, looking at the sort of success you've had so far, you know, obviously, as we said at the start, a European Championship bronze medal 2018, a Commonwealth bronze medal in 2016, back in 2015 at the inaugural European Games, a, a gold, silver and bronze. Um, but across those medal hall so far you've done the one meter springboard the three meter springboard and the three meter synchro do you have a sort of a, a preference out of those disciplines that you like the best one that you think suits you best one that you wish you could do more how do you choose what event you you sort of aiming towards well um the one meter event actually isn't an olympic event you only have it you get it in everything else it's in europeans world commonwealth but it's not an olympic event so three meter for me is the important one and whenever I do three meters synchro that tends to be pretty important as well but um so when it comes to Olympic based three meters is the one we go for so but I mean one meter I love competing it and I sort of got better at one meter before I did it three meters so I had a lot of early success on one meter but the last sort of two years my three meters really picked up which has been good. What as a diver makes you either a one slash three meter specialist or a ten meter specialist like what is it about your kind of diving technique or your physical strength that makes you better at the lower heights than the higher heights say yeah i mean definitely probably more physical like for a springboard diver i mean i've got a pretty pretty standard um springboard shape i'm quite short got short legs and i'm quite like heavy and strong as well so i can you want to be able to move the springboard to send you high into the sky but um with the 10 meter because it's a concrete platform you've got to generate all your height yourself so you want to be quite light and quite agile to sort of ping off there and then also, you've got to not be scared of heights if you want to be a 10-meter diver. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I've got up to the three-meter diving board at the Commonwealth Pool and thought I'm far too high up. <laughs> yeah, it's not too bad once you get used to it. If I say, was, was, there, was there any horrific uh, mishaps when you first sort of crack, gave this a crack and gave it a go? Is there anything that almost put you off it? Or, or I know, obviously, that diving is something that runs in your family. So it's something you were sort of yeah. doing, doing before you were walking. Yeah, I mean, I think I started swimming pretty young as a kid, so I've always loved being in the water. But um, I mean, I'm definitely going to jinx myself now, but I've been pretty lucky generally to get away unscathed. Like, I mean, I sort of clipped my fingers and my toes on the board, but I've not ever had anything too dangerous and I've minimised my belly flops. That, that still sounds pretty sore to me, to be honest. <laughs> Um, so obviously this year was meant to be Tokyo 2020 this summer and, and unfortunately that's being pushed back to, to next year. Although I think even even at the start of the year, a couple of months out fr from the Tokyo Games taking place, you weren't sure whether or not you were going to be part of that British team. I know it was something you were, you were pushing heavily towards. It really intrigues me what that the sort of qualifying process is to be part of you know team gb or, or any team going to the olympic games because maybe not as straightforward as people think no i mean with the olympics i mean it's not like every country can just send someone you can't sort of wait four years and rock up on the day so we have our world cup test event every year of the olympics and um, that's where you qualify the country quota spots 
So the qualifying those spots have it's actually been open for a while. So for the British boys anyway, we'd already opened all of our spots last year. So we were heading out there in April to sort of put our names to it. Whereas the girls were a little bit different. They had to still qualify certain uh, spaces to go. So um, for us boys, we sort of had to go out in April to sort of compete well. And sort of whoever came out on top got their spot. But obviously we never got that last qualification competition to go to. And that kind of World Cup qualification event, is that how all the countries will be operating it? Will they all be looking at that event as kind of the qualifying for their final Olympic team? Or is it a different uh, selection process between the different countries? Yeah, so you get for the individual events, you get 30 divers in each of them. And uh, it's the top 12 from the World Champs last year. And then it's the following 18 at the World Cup. So, um, but every country is different. So some countries do, a lot of the European countries do it. If you open the spot, it's yours. But Britain do it a different way. We sort of open all the places that we can. And then we have uh, trials, like sort of an in-house trials. And so even though I actually opened the spot last year, that doesn't necessarily mean that it was going to be mine this year. So just to confirm, by opening the spot, you mean coming in the top 12 in the World Championships or in the top 18 in the World Cup that you just mentioned? That yeah, be... so that means that, so you get two, per, you can have two spots per country. So for my event, GB opened both of those. So we could send two boys. But just yeah. because me and Jack opened it, it didn't mean that it was me and Jack's. You then have to qualify again against each other. Yeah. That must make it very competitive. And do you ever kind of have any, not, not infighting, but is there any kind of internal competition <laughs> between the team? Because you think, well, I've opened this spot, but then there's someone else who's gunning for the place that you've opened. No, absolutely not. I mean, we're all, I mean, we probably spend more time together as a team than we do with our own families and stuff. So we are like a mini family from home. And uh I mean, we're all aware of what we've signed up to do and you can't, not everyone can be happy with the results. You can't please everyone. So we all know what we're going for. So as long as it's all written out and we know what we're working towards, it's fine. But I mean, you know what sports like, there's politics all the time. All right, about, see, you, you're, you're much more amicable than I would be about that. I'd, I'd, be, I'd be, that's mine. Don't you dare take it away from me. So <laughs> I've been trained what to say. <laughs> <laughs> Very good. Um, just, I mean, you may not be able to answer this, but it intrigues me. So say, for example, the, that competition in April had happened in, in January and it had gone ahead and you had got the, the place on the Olympic team. You, you, you'd, you'd made that open spot that you'd gained yours. Do you know, maybe in other sports this is the case and other athletes you might be talking to about this, with the, with the Olympic Games sorry, being pushed back by a year, would you then have to have gone through all this again to re-qualify or is the fact that you had made that spot yours in in this scenario February 2020 mean that you're going to be able to compete in in June 2021? Well no not exactly so the, all the spots that have already been opened are staying with um, the countries so like all the spots that GB had opened so we can still send all the boys that are like a full boys team and a few of the girls at the moment but uh no so our actual individual personal like spots we have to go through the whole process again next year well i, I say well, you, well fortunately or unfortunately you know you didn't know if that would have been you or not and and i'm pretty confident you you're in a good place and it, and it, and it could have been but it must be crazy that if there's certain athletes out there who have made who have first of all gained the spot then earned it and actually taking that spot so that's then to be taken away and have to go through the process all over again for 12 months yeah i mean I, I, yeah it's a it's a tricky one isn't it i mean you can say it's unfair, but I mean, I'd say it's just unfortunate. I mean, you can't really plan for a, a circumstance like this. So, 
I mean, I'm, no one's ever been through something like this before. So I guess they just got to go through it again, make it fair for everyone. And just while we're on the kind of Olympics, one thing we've talked about a lot here on the show is how potentially detrimental, or at least the massive effect it's going to have the Olympics being pushed back a year for some athletes. How do you think the kind of extra 12 months in it being pushed back is going to affect one yourself, but two also your other peers that will be going for Olympic spots? Yeah, I mean, I think mentally it could be quite tough for everyone because I think you kind of build up the last four years sort of getting ready for this one. So everyone was really ready to go. I mean, our national champs in January was probably the highest quality over all the events for everyone because everyone was fighting for that spot. So I guess everyone's just got to, and it's all being pushed back again a year. So it's to be interesting to see who's got the mental endurance to go for it again. But uh, I mean, physically, I mean, it just gives us an extra 12 months to get better. So, I mean, there's positives and negatives, but I'm trying to focus on all the positives. Yeah, well, I think that's certainly the right attitude. Um, and we had Sarah Wilson, international hockey umpire, on last week that was due to be umpiring at the Olympics. And she spoke of her kind of relief almost that when she found out that the Olympics was going to get postponed because she felt all the kind of current circumstances meant that she and the athletes potentially wouldn't be able to perform their best. Is that something you would be able to relate to or kind of what was your rea- your initial reaction when you found out the Olympics was going to be postponed? I think when the Olympics were uh, was announced that it was postponed and they put a date to it, like that was, I think it almost sort of relaxed me more. I mean, I was gutted it wasn't going ahead because our whole qualification, like it was going so well for me. Like I was having probably the best year I've had yet and I was feeling the best physically and mentally like I was ready for it but um once they put a date to it I was sort of fine it sort of gave me something to work towards but for me it was definitely the unknown beforehand like as all the competitions were starting to get cancelled at one point it was only the Olympics going ahead but we didn't have the World Cup going ahead we didn't have we weren't able to host the trials so it was sort of like how on earth are we gonna who's going to go, what's going on. That was the worst bit for me. So Yeah, I, I think that's, that's a feeling that's, that's shared amongst it. And I said, I know it was a good season for you. And I, I'm sure you're going to be, you know, raring to go with, with extra grip between your teeth, you know, come next year. We wish you all the best for that. Just uh, away from the Olympics, you know, just diving for, 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 for one reason or another is something that in, in terms of mainstream sports doesn't necessarily come on the radar outside of, of the Commonwealth Games and Olympics as much as, as some people feel it should. For those people who, who haven't got a huge understanding of, of diving, when you're not you know, at the Olympics or the, or the Commonwealth Games, what does the World Series of Diving look like? Because obviously there's so much more that goes on than, than just those two competitions. Yeah, I mean, there's there's loads of events that go on. We have a, a World Championships or a World Cup every year, plus the Europeans. And then um, there's also, there's a World Series event that they do. So it's almost sort of like the uh, F1 Grand Prix. They have between four to six normally every year, sort of varies. But uh, you qualify from those the year before. And then you get, if you come in the top eight, you get invited. So there's like prize money to be won at those events. And then there's just sort of scattered internationals throughout the year. But I mean, diving, as it's not a mainstream sport, it is sort of based around that four-year Olympic cycle. Yeah, and I think when you talk about Olympic sports, how do you find working four-year Olympic cycles? You talk about earlier, you like a routine, uh, et cetera, and working you know, on a sort of long-term routine, is that something you, you enjoy or is, or is it something you, you know, toy around with? What does that look like from your perspective? Yeah, I mean, it's sort of hard to plan, isn't it? I mean, we sort of set our targets, like our long-term goals, but I mean, I personally don't like sort of putting everything on one event. So like I haven't, the last four years, I haven't sort of said, 
everything I'm doing is for Tokyo, even though it is. I quite like to um, look at things each time. Like, although Tokyo was a goal this year, for example, I mean, I had to do well at our national championships this year. So I had to get through that. And then if I did well there, it was then off to the World Cup and then it would be a potential trial. So I always sort of look at it as like, almost like survival really i kind of like one i'm sort of one comp at a time i mean I, I can imagine that's potentially a good way of looking at it and in terms of the kind of time between olympics are you in a position where you're doing this full time we've talked a lot about how in some sports and some disciplines that athletes aren't able to kind of compete and train full time because of the financial side of it not being able to support them are you in a position where you are lucky enough to do this full time or are you trying to have to balance other work as well beside your diamond commitments yeah no i i am full time at the moment i'm i'm lucky enough to be on the uk sport one of the funded athletes so i get funding from them so i'm able to do this full time and i'm i mean i still stay at home haven't left the nest yet <laughs> uh, no so at the moment i'm 100% committed to diving and competing right now oh i mean that's great that you get the opportunity and how do you think that's helped you over the past few years then because that must give you a massive kind of platform that you can work from to have all this time dedicated to honing your craft yeah I mean for me full-time has been the best thing that I could have done I mean I always really struggled with school like with dyslexia and stuff and uh, and then I went to college the year after but I just really didn't enjoy doing it and I kind of feel like this was sort of my time to sort of hammer it out I mean and I got sort of options with like school results and college qualifications that I uh, I had sort of doors that I could go for uni and stuff later in life. So sort of decided to put all that to one side and just focus on diving. And it's definitely paid off. Like I don't regret not doing it at the moment. I can imagine, as I said, you've, you've made a remarkable start to your career and, and very much tracking on the up. Just a follow-up question on that. You know, so you're very lucky and well-deserved to, to be one of the, the fully funded athletes. Is there any sort of additional pressure coming for that? Because I know in certain sports, I don't know if this is the case in diving, that that funding streams from you know international governing bodies to to you know national governing bodies those funding streams are very much reliant on how athletes or teams are performing so if you, if you as a team or you as an individual don't perform and don't hit certain goals then that therefore means the funding for that sport is going to be reduced or removed is that something that that happens in in diving and if so is there an extra level of almost you know pressure that you know if if you're not hitting your best and you have a slightly off season that might then have a knock-on effect to what you know your your funding your way of life is yeah definitely i mean they got loads of different sort of levels of funding and the support that you get on each of those levels and it is all performance based so every year we have our sort of annual review meetings and uh yeah they do loads of physical tests but it also involves a big sort of round table meeting which sort of discusses your performance of the year and what your goals are for the next year and if you don't hit certain targets you can move down levels move up levels or be knocked off completely so there is definitely that pressure but uh i think if you're in the sport for the money alone then you're going to just add all that pressure on like for me i'm not i mean i don't i haven't continued to dive just because of the financial support like i mean i just do it because i love it and so that's a sort of a side benefit for me yeah i'm sure that is and i can imagine getting paid to do what you love is the dream for all of us so it's very great that you've managed to achieve that but i think one thing with all sports sportsmen and athletes is that you aren't going to be able to do this forever everyone's career does have a shelf life and you mentioned before that you have got some doors open with your school results and your college results etc have you thought about what life after diving is going to look like what a potential career might be or are you kind of focusing on doing the best with your diving right now and then you'll kind of consider life after diving when it comes 
Yeah, I mean, I've been thinking about it. I mean, for me, I decided that I, because well, the year I was at college and I was really struggling with it, that was the year build up into Rio and I narrowly missed out on going to Rio. So that was when I sort of decided that I was going full time. But um, I only went full time because I had sort of options after my year at college. So uh, I sort of decided that in the build up to Tokyo, it was going to be just diving. And, uh, but I've sort of been looking at potential things that I could do. Uh, well, what would have been next year? So what will now be 2022. But um, I sort of, as long as I got a plan, I sort of, I don't necessarily want to have something full time else studying or work on the side, but I kind of want to sort of have the options for when I do stop that I can go into something. Yeah, absolutely. I think more and more we're seeing the benefits of, of all sports athletes having that ability to, to have the perspective, not to be completely consumed by their, their sports and, and, to hear you sort of having those thoughts is, 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 is really cool. So, well, James, that was, that was the easy questions. It's now <laughs> on to the, 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 real, the real tough challenge of, of running the gauntlet. So you're going to get 45 seconds of random questions. Are you prepared for this? I don't think so. I don't, Good. I don't that know is the I answer we wanted to hear. Excellent. Okay. <laughs> All right, Rory, do you want to cue up the music? There's no time to run the gauntlet. James Bond or Jason Bourne? Oh, James Bond. Bath or shower? Uh, shower. Should salad ever be allowed at a barbecue? Yes. Pitt or DiCaprio? Uh, DiCaprio. Jaeger bombs, always a good idea, never a good idea? <laughs> always a good idea. <laughs> Big Bang Theory or How I Met Your Mother? How I Met Your Mother. Better name, Ali or Rory? Oh. <laughs> Pass. <laughs> oh, wait. Uh, Adam Sandler, overrated or not? Overrated. Uh, best place to get a meal deal? Uh, boots. <laughs> Hummus or salsa? <laughs> I, oh, I, I did not realise Ali was going to ask the, the better name question. That took me by surprise as well. <laughs> I, I, I wouldn't dare to... choose between you guys. No, exactly. So Rory hasn't seen any of these questions before, so, so some of them do take him by surprise as well. So, um, but, <laughs> but interesting, Jaeger bomb's always a good idea. I like that answer. Oh, God, I'll be in trouble if anyone important hears this. <laughs> <laughs> but this, is, this is off-season. This is, of course, during, during his off-season. Yeah. So, um, <laughs> never, but, never, never in season, not on a working night. No, and uh, Boots is, is the best place to get a meal deal. I think, I think Rory concurs with yeah, Boots. Yeah, I, I back that a long way I'm, I'm all about the boots meal deal james it's been wonderful to have you thank you so much uh, we've, we've really enjoyed it obviously good luck with, with everything that's coming up starting next year and and that qualifying process from from up to tokyo 2021 we wish you all the best and, and hopefully that form can carry over uh, and, we'll, and we'll see you there uh, thank you very much thanks for having me cheers, no james. Thanks. Cheers. another excellent interview there royce really really intriguing stuff coming from james yeah really fascinating it's I thought it was going to be really interesting to hear his views on Tokyo and how the pushback has affected him, but it really sounds like he's got his attitude to it right and he's in a good place with his preparation, both physically and mentally. Obviously, he can't get in the pool, but he's been working hard during lockdown and I think that he's approaching it in the right way. So hopefully that is going to be a good sign and hopefully that when he goes into the qualifying to take those spots, he can earn that spot that he won for the team and then go into Tokyo with the best possible form and hopefully bring a medal back for the UK. I've, yeah, I've gone back and forth on what he was saying about this spot and making it his own. I, I thought it was so incredibly cutthroat that you would win a spot for your country and then have to earn the right to actually then go and 
represent the country on that spot. But then I thought about other sports, something like you know, football. You go over a two-year qualifying process to qualify for the World Cup. You might be, say, the number one goalkeeper for all that and then have a really poor like slip-up of form. And therefore, actually, you're not the goalkeeper who gets on the plane to go to the World Cup. So I guess I thought this this was going to be such a unique scenario for Olympic sports. But actually, more I get my head around it, it's just part and parcel of, of high-performance sport. Yeah, I guess it's just that competition. And it's just ensuring that each athlete is at their best and the best athletes are going. And if you're not at your best at the right time, unfortunately, you're potentially not in a position to go to the competition. Yeah, well, rather them than me. <laughs> yes, best of luck to James and all the athletes that are going to be trying to qualify for Tokyo next year. Right, so a bit of a change this week in our uh, top threes, moving into our three top favourite sports movies that we, we've watched. The polls are still not quite uh, concluded on last week's, but it looks like I've got a win on Instagram, but you, but you might be winning on Twitter. So uh, hopefully I can sneak back over the line, although it's a lot of ground to catch up. Yeah, it's a, a close-run thing last week. The Instagram population... Back to your favourite fairy tales, but I can always I can always trust the Twitter fans to be on my side. Yeah, it's that Andy Murray thing. I tell you, it's, it's clouding their judgments. You see, you go for more recent ones that people have more memory on. So I need the older population out there to get behind me. But anyway, top three movies this week. Uh, slightly different. My turn to go first, and so I've uh, I've only just sort of finalised my order, but. Uh, I had four, but in third place, I'm going for Chariots of Fire. Anyone who hasn't seen it, even just for the iconic soundtrack, incredible story about Eric Liddell, the, the, the British runner, the British sprinter, actually hailing up here from Edinburgh. So maybe that's where my affinity comes from. But if I haven't got a chance to watch it, you'll have all heard the music, but his battle with his religion and what that meant uh, for him competing uh, at the Olympic Games uh, and all the connotations and the sort of prejudice that he went through from from a religious standpoint because of that incredible watch. Number two, I, I've picked this one because I didn't want to have two American football ones. <laughs> so to have a bit more diversity is Moneyball. Again, we talked about a couple of weeks ago with the introduction of analytics coming into Major League Baseball um, and, and the role Brad Pitt played in that, portraying Billy Veen and, and his turnaround of the Oakland A's. It's a fascinating story. Whether analytics is going too far is a debate for another time, but the actual movie itself was just just incredible insight and, and really, really fascinating watch for me uh, and recommend to everyone. And number one, I'm going to go for one American football one over another because I think you're going to pick the other American football one, so I'll be intrigued to see if you do, is Remember the Titans. I remember watching that. Actually, it was on a rugby tour in Ireland, and it was raining cats and dogs so we had to find something to do that wasn't outside so we went to the cinema and just the story that was portrayed through Denzel Washington and what and what he did around the Titans team his high school team in a in one of the times where a racial movement around black and white America was very prevalent as we're finding now in slightly different terms but just the whole portrayal of that and and the way that they told that story was was beautiful and I think it's always stuck with me on top of it, you see some pretty awesome football going on as well. So I think that for me is whenever I think of sports movies and I want to put a sports movie on, I, I go straight to that. Well, you've almost very successfully picked three films I've never seen. <laughs> but um, you actually... <laughs> we need an education, Rory. Ali actually forced me to watch Remember the Titans only a month ago and an amazing film. So 
I feel like it would have been wrong if I had taken that away from Ali because he forced me to watch it, but it is a fantastic film, so I, I recommend you go and watch it if you haven't seen it. But my three films are all classics in their own right. The first one, my number three, is actually an awful film. It's a terrible, terrible film. I already know now where you're going with this one. But for me, growing up, and for people of my generation, it was such like a cult icon, I couldn't not put it in. So my number three is Goal. Now, Goal was shocking. <laughs> the story of Santiano Munez and his journey from South America to Newcastle United to help them qualify for the Champions League. And then the follow-up of Goal 2, where he moved to Real Madrid and played alongside Raul and David Beckham, was was something to behold. And it was it was everything that a little boy dreamed of when I was growing up watching it. But it was a shocking film. But it was a cult, it was a cult icon for my generation, so I had to include that as number three. Number two is another cult icon from a slightly older generation, but I remember watching it when I was young and being awestruck by the story and by the whole kind of commitment and it's Coach Carter. Just it is one of those classic sports films and the the, the way that Coach Carter came into that film. And I think the the iconic scene will always be where the one player had to run run all the suicides by himself to prove that he was worthy of getting back into the team and the and the team came in and they ran it with them and it's just kind of this perfect feel-good team mentality and just showing the team spirit and the Portland team spirit in sports so that's number two and then number one I think you are right it's I think I've picked the other American football film and it's the blind side yeah I think it's the true story element of the blind side that does it for me the fact that you could you could see Michael Orr playing for the Ravens when I was growing up you could go and watch him having having watched the movie and the fact that yeah, it's just this true story of this boy who comes from such difficult backgrounds and goes on to make it in football. It's just amazing. So that is that is my number one. Yeah, I knew you were going to pick the blind. It is a phenomenal movie, um, and so I thought I'd let you ha- have that. Um, but no, I don't want you complaining when I win now. No, that's that's fine. I I I chose to to go a different direction, but but that's fine. But it gives our listeners, if they haven't seen them, six movies to to think about watching rather than just the just the five, which is great. All, all fantastic movies, all all based around uh, people's different struggles outside of sport, and then what sport can do to transcend and and, and help people tell their story we look forward to seeing what your uh, thoughts are and uh, your your poll uh, votes go uh, as i said i probably should win because i went first uh, <laughs> however that's probably going to put people to go the other way this time but anyway thanks very much for listening uh, we look forward to seeing you next week and everyone stay safe